0: Let us pray. Almighty God, we beseech you graciously to behold this, your family, for whom our Lord Jesus Christ was willing to be betrayed and given into the hands of sinners and to suffer death upon the cross, who now lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. So the whole of this pastoral epistles class has carried with it the subtitle, God's vision for the church as his faithful family. And our stated goal at the beginning was that we were going to explore the theme of fidelity as St. Paul relates it to God, sound doctrine, the church, and mission. Our, our goal for today is to look at fidelity to the church. By which I mean fidelity to one another. This morning we're going to consider the picture that St. Paul gives us regarding what it means to be the family of God and how it informs our understanding of discipleship. So look with me at our passages for the for today. 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Very short passage, but then we're going to get into the lengthier Titus 2, 1 through 8. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. In Titus 2. Teach what is consistent with sound doctrine. Tell the older men to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness or endurance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husband and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself, Timothy, Titus, in all respects, to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that the op- opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So a few weeks ago, uh, I, I don't remember exactly when at this point, uh, <laughs> a while, um, I, I kind of went briefly through the idea that the church as the family of God is an idea that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Um, we're, we're not going to go that far back today, but I do want to take a look at what Jesus has to teach us about family. In Mark 3:31 through35, before we jump into our passages, Jesus' mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, "Your mother and brothers are outside seeking you." He answered them, "Who are my mother and my brothers?" And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, "Here." are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Oops. As Jesus was being crucified, we get a scene in the Gospel of John where he charges the Apostle John to care for his mother Mary as if he was her own child. And I think that scene is important, especially as we look at Mark 3. Because we we don't want to read Mark 3 and come away thinking that Jesus is rejecting the importance of human families. We heard from our readings this morning and from Jacob's sermon that... God's intent from the beginning has always been family. It is a cornerstone of our existence. And so we don't want to, we don't want to read Mark 3 in such a way that we come away thinking he is rejecting our, our earthly families. What he's doing is resituating the earthly family into its proper place in the kingdom of God. And as I've said throughout this class and may continue to do so, the blood of Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us and the waters of baptism forge a stronger bond than any other biological or legal relationships we may have. Because when Christ returns, there are ways in which all those other relationships that we have are going to go away or be transformed in ways that we can't necessarily understand right now. But the relationship that will continue for eternity is that we are brothers and sisters with one another, adopted by God, and brothers and sisters with Christ himself, sharing in his inheritance through the Holy Spirit. So, Mark 3 does not mean that God intends for us to forsake our earthly families when we enter God's covenantal community. Rather, the idea, the ideal even, is that in a perfect world, as one enters the covenantal community of God, their families will always be brought with them through holy baptism so that the bonds of our earthly family biological or legal will only be made more beautiful and stronger in the bonds that we have as brothers and sisters of Christ. Unfortunately, this ideal isn't how things always work in real life. Again, we, we saw and heard about some of this in our readings and in Jacob's sermon today. We have to realize that every family, every family, no matter how healthy, even the healthiest families among us, are broken because of sin. Families are collectives of sinners who manifest the fallenness of our world and our humanity in particularly devastating ways. And though we try to keep from doing this, often... In our own sinfulness and fallenness, we can't help but bring our experiences to bear on our reading of Scripture. And in so doing, we often impose our understanding of our human family, particularly those who have had traumatic experiences with family, onto the familial language of Scripture. Um, I'll give you an example from that Uh Not that I want to make myself the the center of attention here, but it, it's I uh, I have a good illustration, so I'm going to use it. My father abandoned our family before I was born, and it took. Years and I mean years of being a Christian, before I realized that I project the failures of my earthly father onto our heavenly father. And today, years after that revelation, I still find myself projecting the failures of my father onto our father. Cognitively, I know the difference. I can quote any passage about the promises of God's fatherhood and his love for us and how we shouldn't be anxious because he cares for us more than even the sparrows that he dresses in splendor. I know the difference. But the problem isn't cognitive. The problem isn't that I can think the right things or the wrong things. The problem is effectiveness. Affectiveness. You see, the path of dislodging my own fears and securities from the beauty of God's revelation of himself in Christ and in Scripture has been excruciatingly slow. But one of the ways that God has worked in my life, slow as it may be and seem and feel, has been by bringing older men into my life to be Paul's in the church, to be my father's in the covenantal community. But it's still an imperfect picture, right? They are sinners. I'm well acquainted with my own sinfulness. But despite this and God's grace, the beauty and glory of God's fatherhood shines so much more brightly to me today. And it's because these men move towards a lost and confused punk kid, and no, I have not grown out of that yet, in love and in prayer and in sympathy rather than judgment. That doesn't mean they didn't tell me hard things because they did. And I needed to hear them. And I still need to be told hard things and I still need to hear them. But here's the reality. Many have experiences that are far worse and far more devastating than my own. Chances are someone here, even now, comes from such a family. If that's you, I want to say I'm sorry. And that... I want you to know that I and I'm sure Nick and Jacob would agree that we are available to sit and talk and pray or just pray and no talking. Whatever, whatever we can do, which isn't much, but what we have, we offer to you. My point is this. God's depiction of the family in Scripture and in the church and in the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is meant to inform our understanding of human families, not the other way around. But it's so easy for us to impose experiential knowledge from our broken families onto the Scripture, onto God himself. God shows us what it means to be family. And so, with that caveat in mind, let's get to our passages. In 1 Timothy 5, 1-2, St. Paul uses familial identities to define our relationships to one another. And then in Titus 2, 1 through 8, he gives us a picture of what it looks like to embody those familial identities. Starting with 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2. In God's family, older men are fathers. Younger or older women are Mothers. Younger men are brothers, and younger women are sisters. Now we need to recognize that these categories are a little bit relative um, because Paul is writing to Titus, who himself is a younger man. And so older and younger, in in some sense, is relative to Titus. Um, I, I think the ways that we should kind of... Look at these passages, if, if we want to kind of understand how it works for us, is that uh, we we look at we look at these categories in in sort of a, a, a generational sense. Now, this isn't like me interpreting this passage. This is me just kind of thinking through um, what what it might look like, and so. Um, what's interesting and I I say this with kind of a full self-awareness of uh, standing before you all and in what clothing I stand before you all but St. Paul writes to Titus in 2.15 saying exhort and reprove with all authority, let no one despise you But then he says the same thing to Timothy, but he adds, These are the things you must insist on and teach. Let no one despise you for your youth, but be an example to believers with respect to speech and conduct, love, faith, and purity. When God confers gifts for an office, whether that be the authority of a bishop or an elder or presbyter priest mm. um, or whatever it looks like for us deacons um, that comes with the office through the Holy Spirit. It is not because of the person holding that office. And uh, it's, it's I think this is one of those things where n- there's nothing new under the sun but Uh, with digital news and media and 24-7 information, um, the generational wars have uh, taken off in terms of our awareness of them. Whether it's uh, Zoomer, Boomer, Millennial, whatever generations, there's a lot of frustration and hatred beyond those lines. And And it seems to some degree there may have been some of that in Ephesus and Crete as well, given what St. Paul tells Timothy and Titus. But does that mean I'm wrong? I don't know know what that means necessarily. Uh, Oh, yeah, this is going on the website. There was a crack of thunder immediately after I said that. move on. So, so younger and older here is relative to Timothy and Titus who are already younger men in the church. So some important concepts to draw out as we recognize this. I already said one of them. First, I think we can consider the age differences in a sense of, of generation differences, um, which is why it's important that we not be shaped and formed by our culture's understanding of age and generations. So the difference when you think of these categories is not something like five years or 10 years or maybe even 15 years, but probably around 15 to 20 to 25. I'm not, I'm not, I go to my contemporaries and my friends asking for a lot of advice that the advice that I'm looking for is not necessarily fatherly. So, that's a way to think of these categories. Second, we're called to honor our churchly parents just like we are called to honor our familial parents. Conversely, we're all called to take care of, guard, protect, and catechize the sons and daughters of our church. Isn't that what our baptismal liturgy affirms? After the baptismal vows are made, the celebrant turns to the congregation asking, will you who witness these vows do all in your power to support these persons in their life in Christ? And the congregation responds in one voice. We will implied with God's help. This understanding of family, the church as God's family, is all throughout our worship. But finally, last point here. As a way to flesh out what these relational realities mean in the context of God's family, let me paraphrase Paul. This is not inspired. There is no longer single parents nor orphans childless nor fatherless forgotten nor abandoned for we are all fathers mothers brothers and sisters in God's family now each of those categories and there's many more that I probably could have chosen to put in there but they all point to realities in our broken world that causes real hurt and real suffering in people's lives. And my intent is not to diminish the pain that that causes. Rather, what I hope for is that you see this as an invitation to see in Christ the fulfillment of your deepest longings and a peace which surpasses all understanding. And then in the church, a place where you do not have to deal with your suffering or burdens alone. We are family. And hopefully not like the weird uncle kind of family at reunions, although because of our sinfulness, we often are. The church should be a place where it's okay to not be okay. And with the love and support of your church family, a desire to not stay there. Turning to Titus 2. St. Paul gives us a picture of what it looks like to be a father, a mother, a sister, and brother in the church. And uh, to keep things a bit simple, here's the full list of qualities that we find in this passage. Sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slave to wine faithful to spouse and children, household responsibilities, a model of good works, integrity and sound speech. I hope these sound familiar to you. But if not, let me refresh your memory. Each quality is found either explicitly or implicitly within 1 Timothy 3, which we looked at two weeks ago. They're the qualifications to the ordained offices. And um, also Titus 1, 5 through 5-9. They are the qualifications for bishops, priests, and deacons. And as I said in our last class, God doesn't call super-Christians to ordained ministry, for example. He calls, equips, and gifts ordinary Christians in order to serve in the vocation he has called them to, just as he does with every one of you. In your vocation, it's no different. The vocation's different, but what God is doing is not different. So again, just like with verse seventy-three, uh, rather than going through the whole list, I want to pull sort of a, a, an idea out of this that I that I see thematically, and that's that the being in the family of God is being a family of discipleship. And if you're wondering where in the world I get this from the current passage, I'm going to back up first um, and just kind of consider discipleship and scripture very generally. And then we'll come back and look for the contours of discipleship in this passage. Discipleship is one of God's intentions for being a family within his covenantal community. It has always been this way. This was made explicit in the Old Covenant as the Israelites were instructed to uh, raise their children up in the covenantal faith by passing down their faith to their children. In the New Covenant, families bring their children into the covenant through holy baptism and then make vows along with sponsors and, as we saw, the whole congregation, we'll talk about that in a second, to raise them in the faith signed and sealed by the sacrament through a vow of discipleship in catechesis. It's the same. It's the same movement, the same pattern. But, furthermore, in the New Testament and New Covenant, we see a significant expansion of both our understanding of family as we looked at, and the scope of discipleship. Jesus teaches us at the end of Matthew's gospel that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He then explains how we are to go about this work of discipleship, disciple making, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, uh, October seventeenth, Holy Baptism service. Just a reminder, baptizing them in the Father and in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. All right, it gets a bit weighty at the end, but He says, then, giving us a reassuring promise that fuels this mission of the church. Behold. I am with you always to the end of the age. The context of discipleship is within the covenantal community of the church. We go out into the world proclaiming the gospel, which brings others into the church when they they come to faith and then enter in through holy baptism and then the task of catechesis begins so with this pattern of discipleship all throughout scripture culminating in the great commission of Matthew and founder Matthew let's look at Titus 2 2 through 8 again because the pattern is there older women are to teach instruct catechize what is good so that they may encourage the young women and so on it goes. Show yourself, Titus, to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. Teaching and modeling is the language of discipleship. So if we have in this passage the language of discipleship, We also have the tone of discipleship. It is very clear what Timothy and Titus are to do with the false teachers. They are to rebuke. They are to silence. If they do not repent, it is under their authority to begin church discipline. St. Paul himself removed at least two false teachers... From the church, though we do see in Second Timothy that they were still problematic to the church. Sound doctrine matters. That's what all of this has been about so far, right? But this is a very different tone and a very different posture than he tells them to take with God's true family. Look again at 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Do not rebuke, but encourage. Other translations say exhort. (coughs) But wait a second. St. Paul's command here to not rebuke or not to harshly argue with. But encourage or exhort, contradict his own actions, taken in Galatians two eleven through 14. I am glad you asked. In Galatians 2, 11 through 14, St. Paul tells, uh, re- er, tells a story about a, a period of time in the past where he had to rebuke St. Peter. So let's consider that for a moment. Paul said, I oppose Peter to his face because he stood self-condemned. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, and when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, probably something rebukish. Notice that Paul's description of Peter, Peter himself, uses the exact same language that he uses in the pastoral epistles to describe the false teachers. Hypocritical, see also 1 Timothy 4.2. Self-condemned, see also Titus 3.11. Not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, 1 Timothy 1.10 and 11, and so forth, and so forth. In fact, I said to Peter before them all, it has a match in, I think, 1 Timothy where he says um, rebuke them in front of others so they'll, the others will like, basically realize like how big of a deal this is. In Peter's behavior, he was functionally a false teacher. We, sh- we should be used to this with Peter at this point. Jesus did turn around and say to him, get behind me, Satan, at one point. The situation here is completely different than the regular rhythms of discipleship in God's family. And Peter, as a leader in the church, according to James, would be judged with a greater strictness. Thank God, in this situation... Paul practiced exactly what he tells Timothy and Titus to do earlier in their epistles, and that is to rebuke them, but rebuke them with the aim of their conversion. With St. Peter, he rebuked him, and Peter remembered the gospel and came back and was restored. So, the tone of discipleship in the family of God, the true family of God, with those who are neither teaching false doctrine or leading God's people astray, is not rebuke. It is encouragement. Sometimes, in our sinfulness, uh, encouragement can feel like a rebuke. But, how do we be this kind of family? one another. Philippians 2, 4-5 Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. James one 19 through 19-20 Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires in ourselves or the other person. And of course, we have 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, which is St. Paul's exhortation to the saints at Corinth for not living up to this. Not treating each other in a way that is consistent with the gospel. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures. things. This is the posture of God's family. And if we attempt to be this kind of church, I want to warn you, we are going to fail. We are going to fail miserably, and it is going to be hard. This is not an easier way of discipleship. It's a better way of discipleship. And the church, believe it or not, like our own families, is full of sinful people. But we are called to love one another. C.S. Lewis writes... See, it, Jacob, it's, it's fine. Um, I've been teaching this for six weeks now, and I, I think I've quoted Lewis every other week. Uh-huh. C.S. Lewis writes, To love at all... Is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one—not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe. Dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Vulnerability is scary. Do we dare have the courage to be vulnerable with one another? What happens if we try to be vulnerable? In a father or a mother or a brother or sister in the church rejects us because of it. What if we are dismissed as not having enough faith? What if we are dismissed for being self-absorbed with our own problems? Or any number of other ways that we dismiss the experiences of others so we don't have to deal with it because we don't know how? sinfulness of humanity means that we will experience this at some point if we attempt to be the church God has taught us about in his inspired word now there are two equal and opposite errors here the first is that refusal to be vulnerable the, the hiding of our sin the hiding of our shame with someone I'm not saying with the whole church. I'm not asking anyone to come up here and air their laundry about their father issues. The other is the rejection of those who bring their vulnerability to the table because both of these errors fail to understand and embody the very truths that we proclaim in the gospel. That we are utterly Sinful, and that God's gracious love comes to us in Christ regardless through faith. Are we afraid to confess our sins to one another? Nervous about what others might think of you? Or do you get defensive when others point out things they see in your life? Do you find yourself dismissing others and their vulnerability? Thinking about yourself as better than others because of their particular sins, frustrated that they just can't seem to figure it out. Parents? Anyone? Rebuke rather than encourage. Frankly, if you're like me, you find yourself answering yes to every single one of these questions at some point or another. So, what's the way forward out of this mess? By remembering the gospel. And listen, I I hope I never have to say what's about to be said ever again in a lecture or a sermon of any kind, but someone posted something on Facebook (laughs) that actually captures this beautifully. The person is not here. They were reposting something else somebody said, so I I won't won't call them out. I'll tell you afterwards when the mic's off. Just kidding. The post that they reposted. A Christian home is a home where children repent to parents, the parents repent to children, the wife repents to the husband, and the husband repents to the wife. It's not a perfect home. No such place exists. But it's a home full of repentance, grace, and restoration. And to this, I give a full throated amen. But let's take it a step further. Because the very same is true of the household of God. In first Timothy three, fourteen through fifteen, Saint Paul writes, I am writing these instructions to you, so that if I am delayed in coming to you, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And in Titus two one, the very first verse of our passage today, Saint Paul says, As for you, Titus, teach what is consistent with sound doctrine. What is consistent with the gospel. And then he goes on to list those qualities that I I, I mentioned earlier. And the implication is that the behavior he describes there is that which is consistent with sound doctrine and the gospel. So that's the beginning of our passage for today. Immediately after our passage from today is verses 11 through 15 where, as we saw in week three, begins with the word for. And Paul immediately grounds what he just said that we looked at today in the gospel and the grace shown to us that even when we did not deserve it, God saved us. So he brackets everything that he says about being the family of God and what that should look like in the security we have in the gospel Not because of anything we do, but because of God's grace. So what does it look like to be the family of God? It's a home full of repentance, grace, and restoration. This is our language, our tone, and our posture towards the family of God. Amen.